0: And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... Instrument scientist Dr Dennis Reuter of NASA's Goddard Space Flight Centre on the New Horizons mission to Pluto. Today's interview is the latest in a series for the Minds Eye audio installation, which will soon be on tour visiting Manchester, Bristol and Bradford over the coming months. Go to shrinkingspace.com. For more information,
2: my name is Dennis Reuter. I'm a scientist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, which is in Greenbelt, Maryland, and on the Pluto mission, I'm the Ralph Instrument Project Scientist, and what that means is that the Ralph instrument, which is a combined multispectral imager, meaning it takes pictures at high spatial resolution in a few wavelength bands that are pretty close to visible wavelengths. They're sort of what you would see if you were staring at Pluto from 10,000 kilometers away, which will be more or less where we are when we're at closest approach. It also has an infrared spectral imager. And what that is, is um, an instrument that takes many... Uh, spectral elements in the infrared specifically between about 1.2 and 2.5 microns and the way to think of that is that 1.2 microns is about a a wavelength that's twice as long as you can see with your eye and 2.5 is four times as much as you can long as you can see with your eye Um, and we take a lot of a lot of spectral elements between those two wavelengths because they tell us a lot about the composition of the surface. So the two parts of RALF, MBIC, which is the visible near-infrared imager, and LISA, which is the infrared spectral imager, are very complementary. The infrared spectra is not taken at quite as high resolution, spatial resolution. Uh, we don't see things quite as clearly with the infrared as we do with the with the visible. And the two spectral ranges tell us a lot about the surface, a lot about the composition. It tells us a lot about the structure. It tells us a lot about the variation of these things as we go along. So that's a basic summary of what Ralph does.
1: So how did you originally become interested in planetary science before it became a career?
2: I'm from the age when we were just starting to really get into in-situ space exploration. In other words, people and satellites being able to go into space And it just fascinated me when I was growing up the possibilities that one could learn a lot about all the planets and other objects that are in our solar system by sending something out there and visiting them. And as that became more and more prevalent, you know, we'd find out that what we had thought we knew from the ground observations was often wrong. And what we found out when we had spacecraft that went by the systems uh, was just fascinating. I mean, you know, there are lots of volcanoes on Io that are spitting out stuff. Who would have thought of that, you know, Io being a moon of uh, Jupiter? There are just so many interesting things going on that we've learned from the space exploration, but the robotic space exploration, that it's hard to imagine not being fascinated by it, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So it's just been always something that I've found very, very fascinating. And the relationship between what we learn on other objects and Earth, Earth being a, a planet in a solar system, when we look at other planets and objects in the solar system, it tells us something more about how Earth came about and uh, you know what our history is here. It connects all to what we do in everyday life.
1: So what else have you worked on before New Horizons?
2: Before New Horizons, I've worked on a number of opportunities for investigation. And I'll I'll get to, there's a bit of a history here. Um, I was more of a laboratory scientist, theoretical scientist, taking spectra of molecules that we see on the Earth and also in space and started getting very fascinated by the equipment that does that. Now, what you have in, in labs is not very applicable to what you need on a spacecraft because in a lab you can play with things and in a spacecraft you really can't and in a lab you don't really care if something weighs a whole lot of, you know, if it weighs a whole lot, if it gets you the data you want, but you can't do that on a spacecraft. So there's a an interesting combination of the two to get into that. So the opportunity for proposing a type of instrument, a spectral instrument for Pluto came along. One of my collaborators, Don Jennings, and I came up with a concept for a very light, very robust spectrometer, which is what is now flying on New Horizons. But this was well before the mission was approved. And that technology has actually flown on Earth missions. We've used it to take spectra of the Earth to take out the effect of the atmosphere on measurements of the surface. It is going to be flying on another space mission to uh, an asteroid, Bennu, as part of the OSIRIS-REx mission, and it led me to do things on other platforms. For example, on the most recent Landsat satellite, the Landsat 8 that was launched in 2013, there's a thermal infrared sensor called TIRS on the on Landsat 8 that I'm the instrument scientist for. So the technology development that we did for Pluto fed into things that we did for Earth, which fed into things that we did for other space missions, and then gave us more confidence in what we were going to do for Pluto, and so has just kept evolving that way. So I've been involved in five space missions so far. Well, one will be launched in September of twenty sixteen. So four have launched and one coming up, the one through the asteroid.
1: Before we talk specifically about New Horizons, it's part of I guess an umbrella of projects called New Frontiers, New Frontiers programs. So what's that? What does that mean?
2: The New Frontiers programs are programs that NASA has initiated for specific missions to do specific things that are proposed by a, a principal investigator. So the principal investigator is the one responsible for the whole mission. Their biggest missions that NASA does that are in that principal investigator mode. So, so far there have been three chosen, New Horizons going to Pluto, Juno, which is at, at Jupiter, and the osiris Rex mission, which is going to Bennu to return a sample. They're focused in the sense that there's a specific target that one is looking at uh, or a specific action that one is doing. And they're kind of at the billion-dollar cost limit. That includes launching and making the spacecraft and making all the instruments and so on and so forth. So it's a combined science effort of trying to define what is the interesting science at an object or in an area, and then what is the optimal... Set of instruments that go into that help you define that mission. Help you get the data you need to answer the questions that you've asked in defining the mission.
1: New Horizons. What is it? What are the goals?
2: The New Horizons mission's goals are to explore an area of space that we haven't looked at at close up before. This is the area called the Kuiper Belt objects. They're leftovers from the early solar system formation. And because they're very far out, Pluto is 34 times further from the sun than the earth is. And it, it gets much further out because it has what's called a very elliptical orbit. It's not a circle, it's sort of a, an ellipse. And we're going out to the furthest, uh, well beyond 33 AU. We we're looking at a new type of bodies that haven't been observed up close before. And so its goal is to understand what is the composition on those bodies? How does the composition vary as a function of position on that body, which tells us something about how things move around on very cold objects. Remember, Pluto is kind of on the order of minus 240 uh, centigrade, so sort of 40 Kelvin, 30, 40 Kelvin is what the surface temperature is. There is some atmospheric gas that's a little warmer, stuff coming off the surface, but it's so cold out there that you freeze nitrogen onto the surface. Nitrogen exists in Pluto as a solid. So we're trying to understand what the composition is, what the history of impact history, what happened during the development of these bodies that are very representative of what made the Earth, what made the other planets, but has not been affected by all the processes that go on in the inner solar system by you know, so much radiation coming from the sun, by gravitational effects in the inner solar system. Uh, they were affected a long time ago by gravitational effects that threw them out there. So we can kind of look at this as, as kind of a time machine. We're, we're being able to go back and look at the history of the solar system 4 billion years ago by looking at these objects now. They, they maintain that history. They don't have the erosion that you see on Earth and in the, other, in the other inner solar system objects. So that's sort of the goal, is to understand the development of our solar system and how the planets came about and, and perhaps how the building blocks for life and other things got to the inner solar system.
1: Finkel, and you're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Now, as you mentioned, this is the first time we're going to Pluto, and we'll talk about that more in a moment, but it's not The first mooted mission to Pluto. There was a mission, the Pluto Fast Flyby and the Pluto Kuiper Express, both of which were cancelled. So tell us something about how this process works. Why did this mission get off the ground and those ones didn't?
2: I think the reason the New Horizons mission got off the ground versus uh, some of the earlier missions was that, as you can imagine, there is a fair amount of scientific competition for. For the resources to do these missions, the Pluto Fast Flyby, the Pluto Kuiper Express, those were actually, perhaps, in some cases, the, the amount of money that was requested. You know, they were more complex missions in some cases. In fact, some were originally two flyby opportunities. And so, there's just a lot of competition for resources. And I think that as more was understood about the solar system, remember when. Pluto missions were first being proposed, Pluto was considered to be sort of the furthest out object that we really could see as part of the solar system. There there were other areas proposed. There was the Oort cloud and the Kuiper belt, but nobody had observed them. Nobody had seen what was going on there. As, As time went on and we started to understand that, oh goodness, the Kuiper belt really is a, a very active and important part of the solar system for the reasons I was giving for because of of the number of bodies that are there, because they have the uh, the, uh, history of the solar system embedded in them. I think it became more and more recognized that the science drivers for going to Pluto And remember, when we go to Pluto, we are now also visiting not only Pluto, but its moon Charon or Charon, depending on how you want to pronounce that. And then four other newly discovered moons that have been discovered actually since the New Horizons was initiated. So there was just a growing science driver for doing this. And and the time became right. There was a good match between, again, the This is a a mission that is very far out, so you can't really use solar power. You need very, very small and yet capable instruments. A lot of technologies came together to make it possible. So the combination of the science becoming very compelling, or perhaps more compelling than it was originally, and the capability of doing the mission with technology that we could use at the time, I think just made it a very, gave it a very strong push.
1: So I guess when we go somewhere that we've been before, if we're going a mission to Saturn or to Mercury, places that are difficult to get to but we've been before, we learn things from each of those missions in terms of the nuts and bolts of getting there. What are the unique challenges of going somewhere that we've never been before?
2: The challenges of going to Pluto are several fold. Because we've never been there before, we have to use a bit more of our... Instinct, if you will to uh, to understand what would be the ideal measurements to make, and I think we've come up with a very nice mixture of instruments, a mixture of imaging and radio and particle instruments that are flying on new horizons that tell us a lot about the not only what the bodies are or how they look but also what particles are coming off from them and 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 what their thermal properties are like, and so on. The other uh, challenges that because you've never been there before, there is a fair amount of uncertainty in are there hazards that you have to worry about? Are there more particles that if you have a very fast spacecraft going through, will you hit them? Um, And that's something that we've considered very strongly on, on New Horizons. Also, if you think about it, All the things, because we're so far away from the planet, we're so far away from Earth, when we're doing our observations on Pluto, uh, we have to have everything very well planned. We can't send a command saying, okay, you're here now, start to do something, because it would take four hours for that command to get from the Earth to the spacecraft. And then it would take four hours for the spacecraft to come back and say, yes, I did that. So we basically would have flown by Pluto in the time that it takes just a command to go back and forth. So everything had to be very well choreographed. That is a challenge also because we've launched a, a spacecraft that as after you launch something, you learn much more about the details of how it actually operates. And so that has to be taken into account on the, in the planning and uh uh, when there 's competition between the various instruments, and i don 't mean competition in a in a bad sense, I meant that there are a lot of measurements that one wants to do, and there are optimal times for doing each of those and so planning a very comprehensive and very uh, a very high science return encounter is a very detailed process, and it 's gone on from before launch and is still going on now. We're still testing the operations that are being done to make sure that they do what we expect them to do at the at the very detailed level. So that, those are all part of the challenges of getting out there.
1: to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. I'm talking to Dr. Dennis Reuter, and we're talking about the New Horizons mission to Pluto. And Dennis, I want to talk about the scientific equipment that's being carried by New Horizons. But before we do that, it's carrying some other artifacts, including, I understand, some of Clyde Tombaugh's ashes.
2: Yes, it is. That was a a decision made by the uh, principal investigator, Alan Stern and, and others, was that when we launched, Pluto was uh, the last planet that had been discovered, and we thought that, and Alan thought that it was a very fitting tribute to Clyde Tombaugh, who was the discovery of Pluto, discoverer, excuse me, of Pluto, that we include his ashes on a mission that was flying by the planet that he discovered.
1: I think that's such a wonderful idea, I
2: really do. I, I think so too.
1: Let's talk about the scientific equipment that's being carried by New Horizons then. So you talked briefly at the beginning about Ralph, which is the project that's obviously closest to your heart. All of these instruments have got wonderful names. We could talk about why it's called Ralph, but there's ALICE, there's LORI, there's Pepsi, there's Rex. Tell us about some of these other instruments and what they're for.
2: The LORI instrument is a... If you recall, I mentioned that, that Ralph has takes pictures in the visible and sort of near-infrared in several wavelength bands, and it does it at a higher resolution than LISA does its infrared studies. Well, Lori, which is an instrument from APL, does what's called a panchromatic image. It's covering basically all the wavelengths from blue, the shortest wavelength that you can see, up to... Wavelengths a bit longer than you can see, from 0.4 microns, which is blue, to about 0.95 microns, and you can see stuff up to about 0.7 microns. So it's covering our visible region and a little bit beyond, but they're at much higher, they're at higher spatial resolution. They're at four times higher spatial resolution than the MVIC channels are, and then, of course, the MVIC channels are three times higher spatial resolution than the LISA channels are. So LORI provides these very nice high resolution measures of geography and and shadows that tell us about altitudes and also texture and so on. So, again, a very complementary, those two instruments are very complementary to each other. LORI also helps us find Pluto and guide ourselves to Pluto. It does what's called optical navigation. We look at Pluto with regard to what's going on with the stars around it, and it it helps us choose exactly where to go during the planning. Then there is Alice, and Alice and Ralph were originally combined as one instrument called Percy, but we decided it was more effective to slip them off because Alice is a ultraviolet spectrometer, whereas Lisa is looking in the infrared, spectral elements in the infrared. Alice is looking at spectral elements in the ultraviolet, which tells us a lot about the atmosphere of Pluto, and when I say atmosphere of Pluto it's not like the atmosphere on Earth where you could breathe it or even notice it it's it's a very oh it's it's a million times less pressure more than a million times less pressure than the atmosphere on the earth so it's a very wispy very small atmosphere but Alice is a very sensitive instrument that will tell us what's there uh, and again there's that complementary nature between the various instruments, uh, a different wavelength band that we're looking at in Ralph, but tells us when we look at them with all three instruments, we'll learn a lot about what's going on. Now, Alice and Ralph were named for a situation comedy that was on American TV literally back in the late 50s called The Honeymooners, and there was an Alice Cramden and a Ralph Cramden were, were two of the characters on it, so that's where the names came from. Uh, then we have the SWAP and Pepsi instruments, and they're looking at ions that are generated from the tenuous atmosphere of Pluto and its interaction with the particles that are flowing from the Sun, so from the from the solar wind, if you will, uh, which has also got a lot of ions on it. And that again tells us a lot about the interaction of Pluto with the solar environment and uh, you know the environment out there. And then there's finally Rex, which is the um, it's a very high-resolution radio instrument that can tell us exactly where the spacecraft is with respect to Earth, how far away it is, by measuring very small changes in the, uh, in the wavelength that it's sending back, Doppler shifts and so on. It also measures because it's it's a thermal instrument, because it's a radio instrument, it can it can measure very low temperatures. So we can sort of look at the emission from Pluto at these very long wavelengths that are given off by a very cold object. So that's the instrument complement, and it's a very very complementary complement of instruments on the New Horizons mission.
1: I want to talk about the journey to Pluto. Then, so it's been a long journey already. Looking at the um, looking at the regularly updated countdown on wikipedia the launch date was nine years two months and one day ago as we record this there was a delay in the launch the launch was supposed to be in september of 2005 and it ended up launching on january on the 19th of january 2006 so why did that happen and what were the implications of that
2: it originally there were some issues that had to do with remember that pluto was so far away from the sun that we can't use a solar source, we can't use a solar generator to generate the electricity. And so we are using a what's called a radioisotopic thermal generator. So it's, it's a radioactive material that decays and generates heat that we convert into electricity. And part of the problem was that it was a little difficult to get some of that radioactive material. So that pushed things out a little bit. There are always some you know, technical issues that go on. Um, the impact really was, again, in, in the planning. There were, if you would have launched in 2015, the encounter would have been at slightly different you know, geometries and so on and so forth. So that was accounted for. And I don't think that really we had once, we could do the planning well enough, and by we I mean uh, there's a, a very large team that was involved in getting
1: New Horizons
2: to its launch. Uh, we accounted for it. And so the, the shift from September to January really didn't have too big of an effect on the return, the scientific return.
1: An interesting fact about the launch is that it's, it's described as the fastest spacecraft ever launched. So why was that?
2: because we're going far out into the solar system and we wanted it not to take forever. So the launch vehicle was a very large rocket and if you looked at the spacecraft itself, it's you know sort of like the size of a of a grand piano or something like that. And it was made that way because uh, we wanted to be able to uh, to get to Pluto as fast as we could. There, there are some things that are changing. As Pluto goes further out in its orbit, it gets colder, and some of the gases in its atmosphere start to get more condensed, so you get less atmospheric coverage. So, so there, there is some drive to make sure that we got out there before Pluto got too far away from the sun so that we'd, we'd still have a good atmosphere to look at. I think the way to look at the speed of New Horizons was it took I believe it was 9 hours to get from the earth to the moon you know compared to if you look at how long it took the Apollo astronauts to get there it was several days and we made it to Jupiter after only 14 months so much faster than than most missions going out there and then we used Jupiter for a gravity assist that helped us get to Pluto So it really was to make sure that we got to Pluto in in good time.
0: Guy Vince, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture.
1: Along the way, and you just mentioned going via Jupiter, and when you're at Jupiter, there was science done. You got to test Ralph, for instance. You got to test the cameras and take photographs. There was also a unexpected flyby of an asteroid. So let's talk about those, those two aspects of the journey.
2: They were very interesting aspects. The flyby of the asteroid, uh, the asteroid was was verified as being at something we could get close enough to to take.
0: One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, It's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care.
2: had to make the observations. So the planning there, now obviously we weren't going through a whole detailed set of observations because it's a small asteroid, we were fairly far away, and we didn't have a lot of time, but we wanted to test as soon as we could the operations. The way, for example, that uh, Ralph takes images, it's not like a camera where you sit and point and take a, a frame down you have to scan the field of view across the body, and you build up the picture by just sort of taking rows of data and making that into a big picture. So making sure that we understood how the spacecraft and the instrument reacted to each other was something we wanted to practice as soon as possible. And then given the fact that, that it was an interesting object, there was some scientific return. It was just perfect that we, we found that. So that was not in the original plan. The, the Jupiter observations always were in the plan. Again, Jupiter we used to do a uh, gravity assist. And there we had more time to make a more detailed set of observations that were going to be, in outline at least, similar to what we're going to do at Pluto. Now, the instruments were made to operate much further away from, from the Sun than Jupiter was. So in some cases, for example, in Ralph's case, we couldn't take color pictures or panchromatic images of the whole of Jupiter because there was just too much light coming off and we couldn't make the rose go fast enough. But we could do images in, in a band that's primarily sensitive to absorption from methane and the LISA Spectrometer could take images, also as could LORI. So this was a very nice combination of, hey, we're we're being able to practice a lot of what we're going to do at Pluto, with, hey, we we also get some very nice science return from this. So it was uh, it was very exciting, and it took a. A lot of effort, uh, again, on this, on the team, uh, who are, are running this thing, which is, you know, Southwest Research Institute is, is the PI group and, and Applied Physics Laboratory are the ones who control, who have the, the operationals control, the ones who control the spacecraft. And of course, the, the science team was, was also feeding in requests for type of data to be taken. So it was that very nice collaboration amongst the, all the partners. That uh made a very successful Jupiter encounter, where we actually saw things that hadn't been seen before. we saw waves along the entire sort of circumference or at least the quarter of the circumference of Jupiter we could see. Waves that had been seen in little bits, but we saw that they went around the entire equator. That had never been seen. We could we could measure the velocity of those waves, and that tells us about the atmosphere of dynamics of Jupiter. So we could see ammonia coming up from storms into the upper atmosphere of Jupiter and watch it decay, or watch its spectral characteristics decay as it conglomerated with other materials that are up there. We could see volcanoes erupting on Io, and we could look at their at the dust coming up from them. There was just a lot of things we were able to do and at the same time practice what we're going to do at Pluto. So it was it was a very exciting time.
1: And once we'd got beyond Jupiter, New Horizons started taking photographs of Pluto. What was the purpose of starting that so early?
2: The purpose of starting that, again, is that, well, that's where we're going. And we really wanted to see there's a certain amount of, that's our goal, uh, you know, when you first can start to see it, it's 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 a milestone. Uh, but also, every year the spacecraft, again, to save money because here's something that's taking nine years to get out to its its prime target. Um, if you had to have a full complement of people planning things and running the the spacecraft, you know, as the, as will happen in Pluto, it, it's very expensive. So we we meaning again the management and project office had determined that it would be good to put the spacecraft into hibernation or we just sort of, we monitored its health, its heartbeat, so to speak, but didn't really do anything. And then about two months a year, we would take it out of hibernation and make sure all the instruments worked and make sure that, that again, the spacecraft was interacting with the instruments and the commands as we expected. And so, uh, you know, that process went on all the time. Well. Now we took some images of Uranus and Neptune, and we want, you know, since we're doing this, it might as well be taking some images of Pluto. Uh, it took a while before we had enough sensitivity, but Laurie got some images, and I've forgotten exactly when it was that they got their first images uh, when we were way far away from Pluto, and things are just getting better since then.
1: Roughly speaking, obviously, as we speak now, where is New Horizons?
2: It's closer to Pluto than it than the Earth is to the Sun, and I've forgotten exactly how far how far away it is from Pluto. We are now at the point where uh, Lori is taking images that are better than the the best images that were taken of Pluto before New Horizons uh, were those taken by the Hubble Space Telescope. And has got. We've gotten to the point now where, where Lori is getting better resolution than those images, and that's just going to keep on getting better as we get closer. We'll get to Pluto. The closest we'll get to Pluto will be on July 14th, uh, 2015. Uh, that's when we'll get to within roughly 10 to 12,000 kilometers of the surface of Pluto. And of course, leading up to that, there will be there is already started a series of observations. That are getting progressively better in all the instruments, and the reason we're doing that is that when we go by, Pluto has has a, a six-day rotation period. So just like you know the Earth rotates in in a day, it takes roughly six Earth days for for Pluto to rotate. So the face that we're seeing at closest approach, you know, we we only see that one side at closest approach. We don't get the really high-resolution images uh, of the other side. Uh, which, you know, because we're three days out from that when that site is, is facing the spacecraft. Uh, so we're taking data to look at what's called the light curve. How does the light vary through the various uh, phases of Pluto? And and uh, that's going to happen up until the final impact. And that's going to be a very exciting day, but we won't get a whole lot of data back on that day because it takes a long time for the data to come back from Pluto itself. So a lot of our data from that new variety from most of the data we get from the closest approach will actually flow down over the next the few months after the closest approach encounter date
1: is Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny, and today I'm talking to Dr. Dennis Reuter. We're talking about Pluto and the New Horizons mission. And so Dennis, let's talk about that day in July when New Horizons arrives. Now it's, it's a flyby mission, it's not going into orbit, so there's a limited period of time to gather data. So what's going to happen when it arrives?
2: When Pluto arri- or excuse me, When New Horizons arrives at Pluto, there's going to be a, (laughs) the poor spacecraft is going to be very busy because it's going to be pointing not only at Pluto, it's going to be pointing at Charon, it's going to be pointing at Nix, Hydra, the other other two moons, all the objects that are around there. This has all been planned over the last nine years or so and will successively take data in each of the spacecraft. For example, Ralph will Get its, uh, it, it will map the entire surface of Pluto in its panchromatic and four colors at a spatial resolution of, of better than a kilometer. LISA will get the spectra of the uh, whole surface of Pluto at better than 10 kilometers. Those are places where we cover the entire surface. We'll get higher resolution as we get closer in, but it won't cover the entire surface. Similarly, Lori will be taking images of these objects at you know four times higher spatial resolution than EMVIC um, can. But a lot of the objects we can't run LISA and MVIC at the same time, so we have to take the do the measurements. You know we take some LISA data and we take some MVIC data, and then we there are also combinations of instruments that. Or, excuse me, yes, instruments that can't be done at the same time. And uh, we can do, I believe it's Lori and Alice can't be taking data at the same time, or Ralph and Alice can't be taking, excuse me, Ralph and Alice can't be taking data at the same time. So uh, those instruments, those combinations, they'll be taking data, we'll have a special time for them to take data that'll be different than the time that Ralph is taking data, that'll be different than the time that Lori is taking data. So that whole planning. Uh, has been quite extensive and at the end of the day we're going to have just amazing spectral spatial coverage of the all the objects that we're, we're going by
1: i mean i guess i'm going to have to ask you to speculate a little bit because we haven't been there before but what are we expecting pluto to look like
2: we have information on pluto sort of at the you know, you put two pixels across it, or three pixels across the surface from Earth-based observations, and so we know that there are certain molecules that are there. We know that there's, uh, you know, there's 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 methane. We know that there's uh, water on Charon. We know that there's n- nitrogen ice on Pluto, and so on. So we also know that that as Pluto. Rotates, and if you look at the various even low-resolution images, they're not. It looks like there's some structure. You now, again, you know, we can't. From what we've seen so far, we can't say, oh, look, there are valleys or or craters or or whatever. But we can. We expect those to be there, and we expect them to have various sizes, and we expect to learn a lot about the dynamics that are going on in the object in the system there by looking at the various sizes of the of the objects and when we look at the spectra and images we can kind of tell oh are there cracks around them that might tell us something about what's going on is there is there water underneath the surface if we see sort of cracks around the uh, craters that might indicate that we'll also be looking for is there what's the composition that's going on around those craters so what i think we're going to see is we're going to see the molecules that we've seen so far, perhaps some new ones, because there may be, you know, when you're looking at the full surface, if, if there's only a little area that has a, you know, a particular molecule, you won't necessarily see it. But when you can look at that particular part of the surface, you will see it. So I'm expecting that we'll see the molecules that we've seen, perhaps some others, that will will be able to start to correlate where we see various molecules and where we see various structures, with the the dynamics of Pluto and, and its moons, and we'll perhaps be able to see uh, has has material moved from where it's illuminated by the sun, so it's a little warmer to areas that are colder. You know, sort of like the same thing that happens on on Earth. So I think we're going to see a very nice variety of signatures, both chemical and optical. And uh, also, we'll see from the particle measurement instruments, we'll see, you know, are there any unexpected outgassings going on? Do we see more stuff in the atmosphere coming off than we expected? Similarly with the UV, same sort of thing. Is the atmosphere looking like you can correlate to what's going on on the surface, and from Rexus we'll be able to say, "Is the temperature of the surface consistent with what we're seeing on you know from the from the composition and uh structure measurements that we're making so there's there's a lot of things like that that we're going to get, and I'm hoping we also see things that surprise the heck out of us, and I just don't know what those would be
1: so what about the moons you've already mentioned that we've discovered some new ones on the journey.
2: We are have been able to include observations of all those moons so that we get oh at least ten to twenty pixels across perhaps with lori and and somewhat less with the other instruments, because again, obviously the major focus was on Pluto, and a lot of the planning was done before we had seen the other moons and obviously we're not going to to change things all around to see them, but we will we have made some modifications to enhance the information we're going to get back from the linen, and again we're expecting to see on them things like what is the composition? Is it the same as what we're seeing on uh you know on the other bodies pluto and and Charon, which are right next to each other, really do have a different composition because Pluto is massive enough that it can store some molecules that the gravity is, can keep molecules on its surface. That Karen can't. So Karen has a lot of water on it because water just doesn't evaporate at those you know, temperatures. Uh, whereas Pluto has nitrogen and methane and other things on it. So what will we see on those other objects? Will we see other molecules? Will we see something that's that's uh, been there sort of since it was formed? It's again gives us much more information about that whole not only the pluto system but what's going on in the whole of the kuiper belt
1: you mentioned there that pluto has you know a, a lot of nitrogen Karen has a lot of water i guess i want to talk about what the relationship is between pluto and these objects cuz one thing we haven't I haven't bothered mentioning so far is this whole is pluto a planet or not a planet debate that happened and is it is it still sort of valid to see Pluto as a planet with moons orbiting it, or are these all like the members of the same system? If you see what I mean.
2: I kind of avoid talking about that because.
1: I thought you might.
2: <laughs> <laughs> because because to me, Pluto in some ways doesn't care what it's called. We, we know that they're they're representative of this of this class of objects that we haven't visited before, and so uh, yeah, it's. It's a nomenclature thing that at the end of the day, when we see what we find on Pluto, um, we're going to say, this is really amazing, this is really interesting, it, it tells us a lot about us, and in some sense, do we care what it's called?
1: But interestingly, though, if you say, I mean, obviously, <laughs> we're anthropomorphizing it, but if Pluto doesn't care what it's called karen might because the corollary of saying is pluto is downgrading pluto might be upgrading karen to an object of the same of the same thing
2: yeah and and in a, in a way pluto and karen are kind of more related i mean they they they're sort of orbiting a a point that's you know the center of the gravity of the whole system which is more displaced from pluto than it is from uh, say you know the Earth or Jupiter or Mars um, because they're they're larger objects, and the the things that are orbiting them are smaller relative to each other, but again, I think after we get our observations, people are going to just be. Excited about the fact that we've gotten these new measurements of these new bodies, and I kind of will leave it up to everybody else to to worry about what you call it, because I'm going to be, we all are going to be very excited about what we found out.
3: Ben Goldacre. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and
1: culture. Subsequently, then, after New Horizons has studied Pluto and the Moon, there's a possibility of it being able to observe Kuiper Belt objects. So let's talk about what they are first, and then let's talk about what might happen.
2: Sure. The Kuiper Belt objects are objects that are left over from an area on the you know in, in the uh, solar system where smaller objects were made but they never got fully conglomerated into one object that doesn't have anything else around it like is what you see in um in the inner solar system now you know whether whether that means that they're not planets or not I, that's to me nomenclature but because they're these leftovers from that early formation process and they just haven't been too disturbed you know we're kind of we're kind of looking at a chemistry set of what made up the early solar system and so for us to compare the objects around pluto and pluto and the objects around pluto karen and it's and 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 the moons of pluto and i i'll call the moons of pluto just because i think it's easier um with an object that is it different area away, again, tells us perhaps more about the dynamics that were going on during formation, and and it may tell us a little bit more about, or a lot more, about what processes have occurred since their formation. Uh, So there have been objects identified that we can almost certainly get to uh, with the fuel on board that we have and so on, but they're not part of the mission yet we we've identified the objects and i'm sure that we'll that a proposal will be made to extend the mission beyond but officially it's not there yet but we know that that there are things that we can get to and we'll see how it pans out after uh, you know after uh, after we we have the pluto encounter but it would be very nice to be able to get more statistics if you will to see something another object in this general area that is not from Pluto itself and from the Pluto system itself.
1: And what else is there beyond the primary objectives of the mission that could be done given the time and the location and everything? What else would you like to see happen science-wise if we're able to?
2: Well, of course, the imager's Unless you're you're close to an object, then and you you really don't get much from the imagers unless it's a very large object. Um, and as of course as we get further from the sun, the amount of light that we have to be reflected from from the objects is getting less. So beyond this, you know, sort of a a relatively close object uh, that that we can get to, I think the imagers will. Not provide too much data, but again, there are these other instruments on there there is the you know the radio uh, instrument that can still tell us how Pluto is behaving or excuse me how New Horizons is behaving as it keeps on going out through the solar system i mean it it 's just going to keep going until it gets to the end it' never it never will will stop the um, particle instrument swap and in Pepsi will of course be able to tell us about the Composition out there, and uh, you know the, how the interaction of the solar wind is with that, with whatever other materials out there. And um, there's a another instrument that I apologize for not mentioning before, uh, because it was not sort of one of the complement of uh, original instruments. It's the student dust counter, which is a an object, uh, an instrument that was made by students, uh, uh, University of Colorado, that looks at impacts of, of dust onto it and, you know, counts how many dust particles are out there. Well, that's the information that we could get for a long distance out. So I think that there are things that we could still monitor as, as time goes on. Obviously, the power supply, which is, again, uh, I mentioned this radioactive power supply. It has a lifetime. It starts to not being able to power, you know, the, the instruments and transmit data back at any Reasonable rate. After a while, it still is going to be active for for quite a while. So I'm I'm hoping that there there will always be you know always be a recognition that there may still be some data to come out way beyond where even the extended mission, if we you know propose to go to uh, to this other object is, and uh, you know that we can uh, that we can get some some information back as far as we can get information.
1: And then what happens? What's the, what, I guess, what's the ultimate fate of new horizons?
2: It just keeps going. Uh, it just keeps going. And it leaves our solar system. Now, you know, it's the fastest thing that ever left earth, but it's still slow compared to the speed of light. Right. So it's, it just keeps going and, and keeps traveling and, you know, eventually we we'll get to a star, but that will be a long, 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 long time from now. And, uh, it's I kind of really like that from a personal standpoint. It's it's just this thing that keeps going, and uh, you know, like like the Voyager and, and uh, uh, Pioneer uh, spacecraft that have also gone out, and in some cases even left what we call the solar system. You know, defined by where the wind from the sun sort of is more important than just sort of the general stellar galactic background. So um, it just keeps going.
1: And that's a that's an instrument that you've worked on that will well it will certainly outlive you it'll outlive all of us it'll probably outlive the planet.
2: Yeah, I, I I'm always reminded of when when I think about it you know the Osamandus thing uh, look upon my works you mighty in despair you know when we're talking about uh, say pyramids on Earth well this thing is just going to be exactly it just keeps going and and you know unless something dramatic happens uh, it just keeps going and yeah it's it's uh it's just fascinating now of course something will happen there i i'm sure that you know eventually <laughs> i don't know I, it's i'm not sure if if anything if it will just keep lasting forever i i don't know of any really strong things that would uh, mess it up you know there's some vapor pressure there's some friction from the occasional Dust particle or or gas, but it's really small. So yeah, it just seems like it would last forever.
1: There's lots of reasons why we're going to Pluto science-wise, but a- another reason is because we haven't been there before, and that for me is reason enough. But beyond that, why Pluto? Does Pluto give us the studying Pluto give us insight into elsewhere in the solar system?
2: Yes. Again, it's it's that it's that time machine thing. It's going back and saying okay, this is what the solar system looked like four and a half billion years ago. How did that become what we see on the inner solar system now? And what does it tell us about, you know, again, there's the Oort cloud. The, the Kuiper Belt is sort of a, a collection of, of objects that are kind of in the same plane as, as the planets you know, as they go around the sun. The Oort cloud is this spherical cloud that's even further out and occasionally stuff gets perturbed by stars as it comes out of the Oort cloud, and we see it as it comes in. So it tells us perhaps more about what's going on beyond Pluto, as well as telling us what went on inside of Pluto. So it's that being able to go out to these pristine things and see what's going out there and then extrapolate that to other areas of the solar system that, that makes the visit so exciting.
1: Dennis Reuter, thank you very much for taking the time to tell me about Pluto and New Horizons.
2: And thank you very much for your interest. I think that it's, a, it's an exciting mission, and uh, well, I just can't wait to get the data down <laughs> and report to everybody. This is what we saw.
3: You've
0: been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89Up and hosted by Positive
1: Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunched website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening.